so Loves is the second largest truck stop operator in the US. Uh, we just opened our 550th uh, truck stop. Wow. Uh, you know, it's a family owned company. It's been in business since 1964 and um, has been tremendously, tremendously successful, really executing a, a just long growth vision. Um, uh, reinvesting a lot of uh, earnings into uh, uh, capex for new stores, uh, and it's also you know with that demand put, it's also enabled us to build a lot of other businesses around the actual um, truck stop operation. Oil and gas today is more than exploration and production. It is more than the feet drilled or the hours of continuous pumping. The oil field is a group of people, companies, technologies, and institutions working towards providing the world with safe, affordable energy that is sustainable for the billions of people that depend on the success of the industry. The Oilfield 360 podcast is a 360-degree deep dive into the leaders of the industry who will provide listeners with a first-hand account of what it takes to build, maintain, and lead the energy business into the future. The Oilfield 360 podcast is brought to you by the following sponsors. Simmons Energy, a division of Piper Sandler, one of the largest and most experienced energy investment banking firms in the industry, offering M&A advisory, capital markets execution, and investment research. For more information, please visit SimmonsPSC.com. Lockton Global Energy and Marine, uncommonly different, Lockton is the world's largest privately owned insurance broker and risk finance advisor. Lockton's global energy expertise is centered in Houston and represents the largest concentration of energy specialists, clients, and experiential knowledge in the upstream, midstream, and downstream segments of the oil and gas industry. Visit Lockton.com for more information. Tomahawk Safety a leading manufacturer of safety gloves ergonomically designed for superior fit, offering best-in-class protection and helping you combat the industry's toughest jobs. Tomahawk is also supporting our frontline healthcare workers by offering isolation gowns, gloves, masks, and other critical medical PPE. For more information, please visit TomahawkSafety.com. Range Valuation Services Range is the only oil and gas focused valuation and appraisal firm in the financial services industry. Range specializes in appraising and valuing oil field equipment, machinery, inventory, and property, and customarily works directly with clients, lenders, investment bankers, insurers, and private equity and debt sponsors. For more information, please visit rangevaluationservices.com. Welcome to the Oilfield 360 podcast. We are coming to you live from the Fletcher Azul podcast studio in Houston, Texas. My name is Josh Lowry. I'm one of the hosts of the Oilfield podcast, Oilfield 360 podcast. I'm joined by the co-host extraordinaire, Mr. David Rode. How are you, David? I'm doing great, Josh. How are you this morning? I'm good. We uh, we got an espresso in you. Are you uh, lively, more lively than you were? I'm starting to... Yeah. Get a little, you know, and had a little coffee from the house and then uh, an espresso. And, uh, you know, I'm starting We're to, live, right? Yeah, it's going to be great. 30,000 feet right now. I'm ascending, uh, probably cruising altitude of 46,000. That's a, that's a, that's a good David DeRoad. I actually, uh, this is our second podcast of the day. And we don't typically do two podcasts in a day. And we also started pretty early. Uh, the audience knows I'm not a big fan of early morning podcasts. I don't really hit my cruising altitude and probably to about one o'clock. That's an ideal time for me. But it, again, it shows in your wardrobe today. I mean, no multicolored shoelaces, as I mentioned previously. Yeah. I mean, you're a beautiful guy, but I mean, so, you I'm know, really you, you said that to He's me earlier on the first podcast and I had to go to the restroom in between breaks. I obviously looked at myself in the mirror. I look great today. I'm not even, I, I don't even hear those. I look very cool. My hair looks great. I'm having a great hair day. So I think I'm, the boss lady told you to keep the lights turned off and you got dressed in the dark. Well, That's Jonathan just, is, uh, yeah. Jonathan can make us look good. If you, by the way, we have a YouTube channel. Not many people know that about the show, but if you want to see how I'm looking today, check out our YouTube channel. Uh, just search Oilfield 360 podcast and we'll come up there. So, you know, the scary thing is Chuck could probably reface you, which would be terrible. I think that thing that Chuck Yates has been doing is hilarious. <laughs> it's funny, but he has done them 
for months now. I kind of yeah. thought he'd give him up, but he just, if you, if you know who Chuck Yates is, he's, he's very intelligent and uh, he's reached the point in his career where he just, he doesn't have to care as much as the other, the average man. And he is, uh, he's put these like, you know, there's a, there's a word for them. I can't, but basically he can put his face on any uh, character and he's done music videos and Tom Brady's and it's, it's wild. So he's, he's all about it. So um, it's nice to have that much time on your hands. So yeah, exactly. So, well, yeah, but welcome back. We're, we're back into this. This is our third podcast of 2021, expecting 21 to be a much better year than 2020. So uh, I hope it's going well for you so far. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I think, I think uh, early on, there was quite a few of us that were saying we'd, we'd as bad as 2020 was, we'd, we'd love to have it back, but uh, you can't look backwards. You always got to look forwards and Make lemonade out of lemons. Isn't that right, JP? That is very correct. So that is the voice of our good friend, my good friend, JP Feldhansen, who is the managing director and vice president of Musket Corporation. And uh, really thrilled to have JP on this morning. He's just a phenomenal human being, um, just a dynamo success story, a great, great father figure, and uh, and a good friend, and likes to have a good time. And, and, uh, and really, really push the gas down on uh, on growing businesses. So, welcome this morning. Well, thank you for being here. And I got to tell you, I'm very impressed about this studio. It's like being in somebody's living room. Yeah. Yeah, thank you very much. I'm glad he said not uh, somebody's grandmother's living room. <laughs> well, how, how do you yeah. like being called a father figure here by David DeRote? I mean, I, you're, you're a very active, very energetic guy. Are you... <laughs> Are you taking the uh, senior leader approach, or I feel like you're one of the guys that just gets into it when you're when you're leading your companies here? How do you, how are you perceived within the group of companies as a father figure, more like a, a guy shoulder to shoulder with your team? No, I think definitely uh, shoulder to shoulder. I think if you look at uh, how to manage talent uh, today, you know, I think the the old management, the old top down management model is is uh, obsolete. So. Um, you know, we try to run a very, very flat organization and, uh, and, uh, we try to avoid, you know, titles and hierarchy and pyramids and, and really, you know, let people, um, give people autonomy to succeed, give them the tools. And if they have the smarts, the, it will work out well. What, what accent are we hearing here? This is our audience is used to David making fun of me and his very, very strong accent. What accent are you, uh, throwing? this would be West Texas. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm uh, I'm originally from Norway, so so I grew up in Norway and uh, did my military service there, and then I came over here to go to college, and I went to University of Texas and uh, became a Texan. I like it, very nice. So talk about that real quickly, because I, I think a lot of people don't understand that about uh, Norway. Talk about your military service in Norway and how that works over there. Yeah, so in Norway you have a mandatory military service, uh, or back in my days there was a mandatory military service, and uh, you have to serve uh, for one year. Uh, and if you are, uh, you know, if you get decent grades in high school and stuff like that, you can also apply to go through officer training, which is what I did. Then you have to go for two years and, and you get a commission to be an officer in the reserves. So in Norway, you know, everyone is in the reserve. So, so, uh, uh, if you finish your military service, then, uh, you get uh, a gun and a uniform that sits in a closet. And, uh, back then it was in case the Russian invades, you put on the uniform and grab your gun and head for the hills. I just watched the uh, Discovery Channel series called Vikings. Have you seen this? No, but I want to see it. Norway was not to be messed with in uh, the year 900. <laughs> I think that Ragnar Lothbrok is actually a descendant of mine. That's existed. <laughs> Ragnar, this is exactly his name. Have you seen the show? Of course, of it's course. Awesome. Yeah, I know it's great. You should I'm see a, it. I'm a descendant of Eric the Red. The Derode means uh, the Red of the Red. Really? Yeah. Yeah. So, man, anyways, this is, this is a couple of Vikings. Yeah, couple of Vikings sitting here. <laughs> well, I'm. Uh, yeah, I'm just Josh <laughs> of, of the Lowry. So, JP, talk about. Yeah. Uh, yeah talk by the about, way, this is you shouldn't have. We're gonna just ruin every <laughs> every bit of credibility you have. This that's is okay. Yeah. So, graduated UT and. Uh, Tell us about what happened next. Where, what, what, what happens next in your life? Yeah, so I started out uh, after graduation, uh, or while while com co uh, companies were were um, recruiting and stuff. Uh, I kind of wanted to gain some experience in in the U.S. before I went back to Norway. And uh, two industries that are very close to uh, Norway is shipping and offshore drilling. Right. 
So I got a job with a company called Global Marine, which um, which was a drilling company. And uh, I was on a management training program there, and I was rotating between drilling rigs and the treasury department here in Houston. And this is in 1990 when, um, when uh, the natural gas futures contract came out. And this company had some exposure through some gas production to, uh, to uh, natural gas, and they wanted to figure out uh, how they could use the future to, um, or the futures contract to hedge their production. And uh, somehow I was put on that project, and I got introduced to a lot of uh, energy brokers and energy traders, and quickly decided that uh, uh, that was more my lane than drilling. And uh, I ended up uh, making my career in uh, in uh, kind of the tr- commodity trading space, from uh, uh, first Global Marine, then to Fibro, which was uh, Salman Brothers commodity arm at the time. Uh, I worked for um, Williams Companies for a long time, also uh, uh, a hedge fund called Saracen, and then uh, the Loves Company and Musket uh, since 2007. So he said Loves, the Loves Company. That's a that's a big company. It is. Yeah. So Loves is the second largest truck stop operator in the U.S. Uh, we just opened our 550th uh, truck stop. Wow. Uh, you know, it's a family owned company. It's been in business since 1964 and um, has been tremendously, tremendously successful, really executing a, a just long growth vision, um, uh, reinvesting a lot of uh, earnings into uh, uh, CapEx for new stores. Uh, and it's also, you know, with that demand put, it's also enabled us to build a lot of other businesses around the actual. Um, Operation. Well, before we go to those, you know, you told me uh, late Q4 2020 how he started the business. Can you give the audience a, a quick version of how he got into the truck stop business? Yeah, so, so Tom and Judy Love, they started in 1964 with uh, borrowing a couple of thousand dollars to rent a, uh, a uh, gasoline station in uh, a convenience store in uh, Oklahoma. And um, I would say in the mid-90s, uh, they pivoted more into the highway, highway hospitality with the truck stops um, and, uh, you know, really grew from there to what it is today. You called it truck stop hospitality or highway hospitality? Highway hospitality, yeah. So if you look at a truck stop, uh, you know, versus a traditional gasoline station, you know, uh, truck drivers' time is very important. You know, they don't make money if they're standing still. So for them to pull over, fill gas, get some convenience taken care of, uh, get a shower, have a restaurant, you know, all these kind of things are amenities that they need. And another thing that's becoming increasingly important is uh, parking. If you look at the new DLT rules that have more restrictions on how many hours a truck driver can drive, and it's also monitored now electronically, uh, you know, they need places to park. So, so uh, being able to offer all those services is uh, is kind of a must if you want to be a leader in that industry today. It's funny, Claire, my wife, who JP knows, and obviously you know Claire, she's making fun of me the other day because my mobile office, the, uh, the RV, the big yeah. <laughs> uh, Freightliner RV, I had to send it back up to the uh, the manufacturer in uh, uh, Indiana, and. Uh, I uh, I flew up there to go pick it up. They had somebody drive it up there, and they offered to have somebody drive it down. I said, no, I want to go up there and make sure everything's taken care of and done right. So old man got in the plane with me. We flew up there and because uh, he, he's been just just bugging the heck out of me to drive this thing. So I said, you can drive back with me. And so anyways, I forgot how – where this where this location of the manufacturer was, I was thinking it was like Southern Indiana, but it's you know further north than Chicago, and it was a long drive, and I had to be back in in Houston, and so we're just barreling through there, and, and you know we got to a point where we basically both had to stop, and so where do we stop? We stopped at a Love's truck stop, and uh, said, you know, I'm gonna get a power nap in here, and so we we pulled over and parked there, and. And, uh, of course, Claire made fun of me for sleeping in the Love's uh, parking lot. But it was great. worked out great. 
I've now got a Love's uh, credit card so I can, you know, fuel up the uh, dual tanks at the same time. Back in the old CDL days, you know. Get your points, uh, collect your points from the Love's reward. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, anyways, no, it's it's pretty amazing to see how how y'all's footprint has grown. But talk about some of the things that y'all are doing to kind of, you know, move with the time, so to speak, with um, – what y'all are doing with alternative fuels and, and, uh, and maybe that's a nice segue into, uh, what, what you're doing in Musket as well. Yeah, no. And, and, um, you know, another company that, uh, that I run down here is a company called Trillium, which is, uh, another part, another company under the Lowe's, uh, umbrella, uh, which is heavily focused on, uh, alternative fuels. But kind of to back up a little, if you look at what has happened around uh, alternative fuels over the past couple of decades, uh, you know, there's some remarkable things. I think uh, it, it all really started with the renewable fuel standard back in 2007, which uh, mandated, <clears throat> you know, that we blend a certain amount of uh, renewable fuels into the traditional fuel stream, uh, mainly ethanol and, uh, and biodiesel. And uh, I think, uh, you know, we, some people love ethanol, some people hate ethanol, but I think the fact that we've been able to, uh, to convert 10% of our gasoline demand uh, in renewable, to renewable fuel over a pretty short period of time is actually quite remarkable. Uh, that was put in place by the RFS. The RFS also drive the biodiesel mandate. And on biodiesel, uh, you know, if you are the last chain in the value chain, uh, as a retailer, you carry a lot of the risk associated with that product. You know, it's a quality, I mean, the quality, especially in the early days of biodiesel was questionable. And there's also a lot of regulatory nuances to it in terms of how you separate the, the, the RIN and the tax credit, which are kind of quasi subsidies that goes into this. Uh, so, so early on, there was a lot of quality issues, and there were also a lot of fraud related to the uh, separation of RINs and BTC. So, as a retailer, we realized that we carry a lot of those risks. So, we wanted to push the point of blending as far out as possible, where you literally can blend it at the diesel pump. So, if you imagine you're sitting on a big 100,000 barrel diesel tank in Houston, if you contaminate that one, you're going to contaminate diesel in a massive, massive scale. If you blend it at the point of sale, your contamination problem becomes much, much more manageable. Not that it happens or has happened very often, but, but uh, there was definitely a risk. I think with, with our quality control, we dodged a lot of bullets uh, throughout time there. Uh, and then you have the whole issue of, of the RIN separation which, uh, uh, and the BTC separation, which uh, invited a lot of, of uh, suspect players. I bet you there's probably 20, 30 people in jail right now for having uh, concussion, you know, frauds around that. But in that process, uh, I think we got really good at it. And, um, and we've been able to uh, pivot our business to where the opportunities are uh, in it. You know, a lot of it is around, uh, early on was around the blending capability. Uh, then it became, you know, just supply capability in general. But uh, if you have a robust logistics system uh, and a good trading desk and you have the ability of really monitor these markets, you know, they can work out quite well. Uh, and in the RFS, there's also uh, what they call the, the D3 RIN, which are the cellulostic, the, the advanced biofuels. That was really intended to, uh, to uh, promote, uh, you know, Sugarcane and and other other uh, um, uh, feedstocks for ethanol, but it also plays into the whole renewable natural gas space today, where uh, you can take gas out of landfills, you can take gas out of uh, dairy farm manure digesters, uh, water treatment plants. We actually own the gas unit at. Um, uh, the, the, at Point Loma in San Diego where they uh, clean up all the sewage for uh, San Diego. Uh, so we convert that into marketable gas and, and put it back into uh, on-road fuel. That's amazing. So when I first met you, the, your comment was, you're, you're the biggest company that we've never heard of. 
And if you go and you do any kind of research on uh, musket, uh, it's amazing all the different places that a, you know, loves, pro- loves truck stop probably gets you the most exposure. But where that family in, in your group has taken that start to is phenomenal. You're in a lot of different business. You mentioned Trillium just now. That's compressed natural gas. But uh, it, can you just do an, a, an overview of all the different areas of the of the Love's family? I guess it's called the Love family. So, so uh, you obviously have the truck stops. Mm-hmm. Then you have uh, Musket, which is uh, a, a commodity supply. Think about that more as traditional commodity supply. You have Trillium, which is more a uh, renewable uh, an alternative energy arm. Uh, you have Gemini, which is our uh, trucking company. I think we're up to about a thousand trucks now. And then we have Speedco, which is a, uh, think about that as the Jiffy Lube of the truck industry. It's kind of a, a you take your RV to Speedco as well. Um, and Speedco actually has, is becoming integ- more integrated into the truck stop footprint as well, where we're putting... Um, Mechanic uh, stations and and tire care, truck care and tire care stations at the actual truck stop. Again, in light of, of having all amenities, but that's kind of the the high level view of the company. Even if you drill down into Musk and Trillium, I, th- I think the best way I can explain it is probably kind of take you through the history a little of of uh, where we've been and where we are, and and also a little where we're going. So, I joined the company in two thousand and seven, and at that point. Uh, Musket had a, uh, I would say, an early stage of a uh, marketing and trading business. Uh, when when the love footprint was growing in the early 2000s, a lot of the economic growth was on the west coast, west of the Rockies. Uh, you know, Phoenix, uh, or Arizona, Nevada, you know, all these places that really went through an economic boom and, and higher population means more economic activity. So you need to offer more services. Um, and if you look at a map of the U.S., you're going to see that there's a lot of petroleum infrastructure east of the Rockies. When you go west of the Rockies, it's very little. So with this economic boom, uh, there was a lot of uh, arbitrage opportunities between the Gulf Coast and California when it came to diesel. California would trade notoriously higher than the Gulf Coast, and uh, you know there were logistic constraints. So uh, Muscat and Love started shipping diesel on rail cars into the desert Southwest, and we had a patent uh, transloading technology where we were able to take the diesel off the rail car onto our trucks and take it to our stores. So we were able to create uh, supply, you know, security at a low cost. Um, and people started seeing that that Loves always has diesel. You know, how do they get it? Well, they're railing it in. And we started getting people going, hey, can we, can we start buying from you as well? Because we need diesel too. And that created a, a kind of an early wholesale business for us as well. Uh, so that business was great up until the financial crisis. And with the financial crisis, the arbitrage to, uh, to um, the West Coast collapsed. And we were sitting on a lot of trucks. Uh, I'm sorry, a lot of rail cars with nothing to do. And uh, we were also sending some of these rail cars to the Northern Rockies, to Wyoming and, and uh, North Dakota and so forth. And we had customers there that were oil companies. And they came to us and said, hey, you know, we've started this thing called fracking and we're making more oil than, than we have takeaway capacity. So back then you had about maybe 500,000, you know, 500,000 these numbers are going to be a little off, but call it 500,000 barrels of pipeline takeaway capacity. And as the oil field up there was growing past 500, they needed another mean of takeaway. And uh, rail car was the obvious one. So we said, well... We have tons of rail cars, so we converted them into crude service, and um, we started. Uh, if we were not the first, we were very close to. We did this back in uh, late 2007, where we shipped out our first rail car with crude oil from North Dakota. Uh, that business had fantastic growth. Uh, we built um, a Unitrain terminal in uh, North Dakota. We built another one in Windsor. We had half a dozen or so transloading sites up there, and we're going. We were going down to the. Mid-continent and Gulf Coast refiners. Uh, 
But, you know, with the financial crisis, you also had a very aggressive uh, monetary policy, right? We were keeping interest rates really low. We were putting, or the Treasury was putting a lot of money into the system. So people started chasing return, which, you know, really was the, the catalyst for the success of the MLP structure. So you got a lot of these MLPs coming in, investing very hef- heavy in the infrastructure, and that margin got uh, squeezed away over, call it a three, four-year period. And I think today, if you're looking at North Dakota, I think right now their crude production is 1.2 million barrels a day, but the takeaway capacity is 3 million barrels a day, right? So there's no need for rail up there anymore. Uh, but fortunately for us, we were able to phase out of, um, of our rail car leases in time for, for the downturn there. Uh, so we came out of it uh, looking pretty good. Uh, but again, it had kind of just enhanced, you know, our whole philosophy that we want to cover the value chain, you know, on diesel from refinery gate to pump. And in the crude space, we went wellhead to refiner. So we, we built out a truck fleet and um, had our own rail cars. We started marketing on the pipelines, kind of, uh, you know, had, you know, it became a, a crude marketing company, you know, all of a sudden. And, and how many rail cars did y'all have at the time? I think y'all were the largest we rail had, car. We uh, had 2,500. Yeah. Isn't that amazing? Yes. The timing of it is amazing, too. Well, also, too, the interesting thing, I remember this conversation JP and I having, because you had a situation with the regulations change in the, in the rail car design. Y'all had to... Yeah, so, so when you got this, uh, I, you know, I don't know if this was by design or, or coincidence, but... Uh, you know, the, we had a huge glut of rail cars uh, in the early uh, 2010s as, as this crude business was contracting. And, uh, you know, the, the, the way they were actually able to clean up that overhang was just creating new requirements around the quality of the rail car. So, and I think it was probably triggered by some some uh, accidents we had. You know, there was a horrible accident in Canada yeah. uh, where a train blew up but that they wanted to enhance the safety standard. Well, with the enhancement in the safety standard, a lot of these older rail cars just became obsolete. They, they were very limited in what they could do, uh, uh, what kind of service they can do. So, so the rail car builders, you know, oh, I'm sorry, they were able to continue building cars because the, the regulations required a totally new fleet of rail cars. Yeah. You know, I'm, I'm listening to that, and you started in 07, you mentioned, right? Okay. The financial crisis, depending on when it hit you, was either 2000, late seven, eight, or nine, right? Depending where you stood in the value chain there. So you, you're, the company itself pivoted on something that looked like it was going to be completely traumatic for the group to have this many rail cars with nothing to do. And all of a sudden, you know, within 18 months, you're one of the leaders in rail transport for oil out of North Dakota, right? A, a growing market. I wonder how... That's a great time for you to come in as a new guy and trying to figure out how to lead during that time. How does that feel compared to today? Compared to coming out of 20, what opportunities did you guys see? I mean, did you, does it feel the same? I mean, how are you guys looking at it? I, I think uh, that's how the world is, right? You have to be able to pivot. Um, you have to be able to, to be nimble. I, I think, uh, you know... A lot of times we, we manage our businesses towards the success and not towards the failure. And I think if you keep an eye on, on worst case scenarios of any time, uh, making sure that you don't grow too fast, that you don't over lever, you, you know, that you can sustain a couple of rainy days, uh, that's what creates longevity. And, and um, you know, I, I think in, in our field, you know, in energy, I think we have a, a tendency to just be exuberant, right? And we, we just don't learn our lessons. Uh, but, uh, but I think the companies that have staying powers, I mean, if, you, if you're going to be, like I challenged my guys, I said, who's going to be Exxon in 2040? And I'm saying, like, it's going to be us because we're going to prevail, you know, through the next two decades. Uh, we are going to have a business model that, uh, that um, adapts to, to what's going on. So, so I think that the, the ability of pivot or to pivot and and stay nimble in a in a certain way, I think that's uh, that's crucial. The commodity cycles are getting tighter and tighter. I mean, we used to look at it, you know, five to ten year cycles, and now we're down to two three years. 
so so I th- and I think 2020 is a, is a really good lesson. I think you're going to see certain companies come out of the the COVID uh, pandemic uh, looking better than they did going in, and some people are going to look worse, and some are just going to be gone, right? So so I think um, uh, having that kind of thought in back of your mind, what could possibly go wrong, <laughs> is is always good. But back to your your real question, you know, how do I look at it today? We've gone through probably the the strangest economic scenario in that we're going to experience in our careers. I mean, we've had a country that's been, or a world actually, that's been more or less locked down for nine months now, and um, and uh, it's, it's been a great test. I, th- I think you, uh, you you'll find that uh, you know we've learned a lot from it, right? Uh, we use technology differently now. We we have other ways of being efficient. I think we we manage people differently. We we do a lot of things differently today that I think is is going to stay. And um, and uh, you know, can you turn that into opportunity? Can you can you you know create something out of it? Uh, you know, our political landscape as well. You know, we're becoming increasingly polarized uh, from a political perspective. So, how do you find your business model that can work? You know, that that's not subject to all the political noise. So, looking forward, I don't think um, uh, the surprises are going to be, f- uh, f- you know, further apart. I think they're going to keep on hitting us, you know, one after another. So, so you got to build a business model accordingly. How do you, I mean, a business model is a business model, and I understand that, and I, I appreciate that that's an answer that is correct. It's never wrong to say have a good business model, but from a leader standpoint, how do you lead uh, employees in, in that time? I mean, how, how do you stay focused on, I have to move forward and yeah. keep, yeah. A quick word from our sponsors, and then we're right back to the show. Prang & Associates, the global energy search leader. Prang & Associates is the world's leading executive search firm totally dedicated to the energy industry. Over our 39 years, we have assisted more than 750 management teams and boards in 75 countries and conducted nearly 3,600 engagements. For more information, please visit prang.com. Daniel Energy Partners, in-basin research you can trust a leading provider of U.S. oil field research known for its original boots-on-the-ground research approach, as well as its famous barbecue events. Daniel Energy Partners utilizes both its extensive network of top oil field professionals and frequent in-basin field tours to provide real-time market intelligence. Visit DanielEP.com for more information. Galtway Marketing. Answer this question. What makes your company different? You have seven seconds to catch a customer's attention. Galtway Marketing can build your brand and craft your message for maximum impact across all your marketing efforts. Visit galtwaymarketing.com slash 0360 to bring your company into the 21st century. Thank you to our sponsors. And now back to the show. It starts with having good people. I, I, I think if you don't have the, the right people, the right uh, people on the bus and the people in the right seat of the bus, uh, you know, it becomes tough. So I, I would say our, our philosophy or my philosophy is, uh, you know, hire the right people, give them a lot of autonomy, let them feel like they're owners in, in what they're doing, whether it's through your uh, compensation programs or, or however you, you reward people that, uh, that uh, unique performance are getting certain privileges, right? And I think if you if you can keep that autonomy and and give people responsibility, I, especially if you look at younger people today, their value system is is different than ours. You know, I've, I have people coming in for an interview and and they ask, you know, what's the most important about your next job? And their answer will be stuff like, uh, I want to have a lot of vacation. You know, we think that sounds crazy, but. That is something you need to start uh, thinking about. People want better, you know, quality of life, not necessarily from monetary uh, perspective. Uh, they want to be heard. They want to have visibility. So I think you manage accordingly. Being, uh, if you're a leader and you just are very accessible to everyone, from the the janitor to the VP, 
you will probably do better than if you try to lock yourself up in an office. You know, so I have two questions. I want to try to see if I can throw them into one question here. But uh, you mentioned the lock yourself up in an office. I've been to your office. It is one of the finest offices you'll go into. It's just, it's just cool. It's a cool office. It's uh, in Houston, Texas, has a neat view and everything. And you have a great office yourself that you don't sit in. You, you sit out on the floor with uh, a lot of the employees, which I thought was just great from a, just a servant leadership. And I'm here shoulder to shoulder mentality. And so I think that's something I'd like to point out or have you talk about. And the second part of this question is the reason that this podcast is cool and exciting for people is it's, it's hard for the average Joe or Jane to get 45 minutes to an hour with you. I'm sure you're busy, you travel, there's work. So we view this as a moment where people who won't get that time with you can learn something from you. And you mentioned get the right people on the bus. If It's been a while, but I'm pretty sure that's the good to great book. Yep. Yeah, okay. <laughs> so I'm questioning, I, I, this is, see if you can take all these questions and put into one answer, but are there any books or podcasts that you recommend uh, to people to read or listen to uh, for just how to lead or how to, how to get an advantage? Uh, and is there something that you read yourself and how do you, how did you kind of um, craft your leadership style? Man, that's a lot of questions in one. Yeah. But, in but, jo- but Josh uh, forgot to mention, besides our podcast and the book that he has not written yet, which uh, <laughs> podcast and books might you recommend? <laughs> no, all the Collins books are, are fantastic. And I actually had uh, the privilege of spending a couple of days at his campus in uh, Colorado. Uh, Tom Love uh, arranged for for uh, some of us to uh, to really go through his whole philosophy, and it was uh, was um, I mean it 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 was really impactful. Uh, the whole thing about the the flywheel and uh, the bu- the seats on the bus and uh, you know your marathon. I mean they're just so commonsensical, yeah. and it's so easy to to. Uh, say you're going to do it and and it's so easy to you know talk about it but when it comes down to it it's actually very hard to do and i think in order to to implement all of his um, his uh, philosophies you you need the whole enterprise behind you it's not like one guy can sit in a division and try to do it and everyone else does something else so so you need this really commitment from your owners and leadership to to um uh, buy into a, a philosophy like that. Uh, you know, things I, I read and, um, and uh, you know, I, I, I've had the privilege of, of working uh, around Tom Love for 14 years now. And uh, to me, that is, is one of the most inspirational things you, c- you can do. I mean, you, you're, you're talking to a guy who's, who's built a business from nothing and, and done it the very methodical and right way. Uh, and he has a lot of little sayings like, uh, like uh, you know, Collins as well. Um, I probably spend most of my time looking at, uh, at um, uh, real-time information, you know. I, I don't have a, a managed philosophy. There's not a book that I'm going like, yeah, I like the, the uh, Charles Koch uh, earning-based management. I, th- I think that's a great book. Uh, but but uh, to me, so much of it is kind of commonsensical. So looking at what other people are doing, you know, what do other success stories look like? What do other failures look like? And stay current on it. Uh, that's probably more a, a model that I subscribe to. And from podcast, I'm going to start listening to this there one for go. sure. <laughs> there we go, yeah. Well, podcasts are, I mean, they're not brand new, but they're also not so established that people have been listening to their entire career. This, it's a, it's a growing media that people can digest when they have time. Uh, you know, I used to listen to them on flights and now there's not a lot of flights going on right now, but, uh, it, it is a way for lots of information to be digested in 45 minutes. So they are taking off. So this is a good one to start with. Exactly. Yeah. I think it's pretty neat to that, to that point. I mean, you know, V is an example, you know, Clay Williams came on and dear friend and, uh, he's not somebody who's going to go on many podcasts. I think the only other podcast he's been on is the internal NOV podcast and they use it as a way to, you know, communicate with their, you know, 
35,000 plus, maybe 40,000 employees, which is kind of interesting. Help them understand what's going on in the company and, and uh, talk about, you know, uh, new technologies that are being developed, et cetera. But I interrupted you when you were kind of walking us through Musket and we were, we were talking about the, the, the rail cars and, uh, and, and kind of, pivoting away from from a strategy that worked for the time. Mm-hmm. So talk talk to us about from where you went from there. Yeah, so so um, uh, you know, this whole cr- uh, crude by rail happened at the same time as the renewable fuel standard. And we talked a little about the biodiesel. I, I probably want to come back a little to it. Um, where, as, as I said, you know, the value proposition in the beginning, I actually have to tell you a funny story. So, so um, Early on in biodiesel, you had uh, kind of three people uh, flocking to it. You had the uh, environmentalist who was really into the, the environmental benefit of renewable fuels. You had the engineers that was really into uh, to building uh, plants and the whole chemical process of this. And then you had the crooks I talked about. Right. And just to, to uh, give you an idea of, of uh, the playing field early on, our first partner in biodiesel was uh, Willie Nelson yeah. with <laughs> Bio Willie. Yeah, Bio Willie. Uh, so that me. was one of the first introductions we had to, uh, to uh, biodiesel. But obviously with the diesel demand we have, we, we very quickly became a significant player there. And um, uh, in order to stay engaged, uh, and this is things we learned as we were going along, was you had to be really connected to the regulatory environment. You need, really need to understand uh, what does uh, you know what is how does EPA want to execute this uh, this law? What are the opposition or the support you know politically? How does it end up in votes? A lot of these uh, these uh, biodiesel uh, you know rules has been in uh, in uh, kind of. Uh, CRs, you know, at the end of the year type of things. So it's always very volatile. There's a lot of volatility brought into from a regulatory perspective. Uh, but uh, we start out seeing the value in the blending. Then it started moving more and more to the produce, uh, producer side. And um, uh, in the law, there was a, there was a uh, guideline for how you could import biodiesel. So as the producer started getting more and more of the margin, uh, you had to start importing. So, so we started... Uh, importing from uh, Argentina. And in order to get qualified feedstock, you had to use uh, soybeans that had been cultivated before 2007. Uh, so we ended up looking at satellite photos from 2006 and find all the, the uh, soybean producers in Argentina that were producing soybeans before 2007. And we ended up uh, literally having people go door to door and buy their, their beans. And... Um, uh, uh, manufacture it to biodiesel, ship it to the U.S. And in 2016, we imported about 25% of the total biodiesel demand in the U.S. Uh, and uh, most people don't know this, but the first tariff that uh, the Trump administration put in place was an Argentinian biodiesel. <laughs> so, so we were the first victim of, uh, of the Trump trading policy or trade policy. But um, today I would say that business is uh, pivoting a little into uh, renewable diesel with the California low carbon fuel standard and the incentives that California has put in place. Um, the low carbon uh, feedstock and uh, converting that into uh, renewable diesel is kind of taking, it, it's competing with biodiesel against, uh, uh, for feedstock today. So, so again, we're we're uh, we're looking uh, we're engaging in that space as well. Obviously, uh, another thing that uh, that uh, happened was in uh, you know in the early 2010s was um, the DF mandate, right? The the diesel exhaust fluid, where you take urea, it goes into the catalytic converter to reduce the SOX NOx emission. So all new trucks have that technology today. I don't know if you've ever seen like a Mercedes diesel and it says blue tech on the back. Yeah. That is That means it has this uh, SCR technology in it. Uh, and, and again, being in the truck... That's yeah, huge all over Europe. Yeah. It, it's, well, you got to deal, deal with you got, it. You my tractor, yeah. my John Deere's got it, my they all truck's have it. got it, my mobile office has got it. 
And David, just so you know, now you have a reliable supplier of DEF in Musket and Loves. Yeah, no, I got. Uh, I can get my my DEF as I'm getting my like a pump, like you would fill up your yeah. uh, diesel. Yeah. You can fill up the DEF. I hate DEF. By and the you way, can, well, but, if you don't have it, your engine won't run, right? Yeah, so, that's right. So, so my, inf- uh, my infinity doesn't take. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I've exposed myself. Yeah, but what's kind of interesting with it is that uh, when we looked at DEF, we saw a lot of similarities to the biodiesel logistic chain. It's a very sensitive product. You know, it's extremely corrosive. It's it's um, uh, kind of hard to handle, and most it, it, it's. 70% water, right? So if you're going to truck it over long distance and you're going to haul a lot of water, that's not very economical. So um, as that market matured, we built out about 20 uh, DF blending and uh, blending terminals. So we have um, in our, you know, big, and we're probably going to build a few more, but uh, you can ship it concentrated and then you had to make the ionized water and then you come up to the right blending and now you really shorten you know, your, uh, your uh, freight or, or you reduce your freight cost a lot. And again, it's been a fantastic uh, business for us, for us grow, uh, and, and it's continuing to grow as all trucks are being phased out. New trucks with, uh, with uh, DF technology uh, is coming out. And another thing that's happening there is uh, they're figuring out that there's a greater emission benefit than what they thought initially. And it's also a miles per gallon benefit. Uh, So because of what's going on in that catalytic converter, it allows the diesel engine to burn at a hotter temperature. So you're getting further reduction of of, uh, pollutants as it goes through. So, uh, you know, as you say, you see it all over Europe. It's all over here. I think every, like you have your truck, your RV, and, and everything is running on it. Uh, but I think it's another kind of really good technology that, that, uh, that is helping us meet on some of these targets we have uh, from an environmental perspective. So, so in regards to that, I think it's, I think it's fascinating, you know, the, the blending on the fly. I guess you borrowed from y'all's experience with, with diesel, biodiesel. We're starting to see quite a few service companies and chemical companies in the in the oil field services space do kind of the same thing which is which is brilliant for a lot of reasons but given what we've had a change in administration and there seems to be this this everybody is is it's, it's almost a zero sum game mm-hmm. like moving to EV what is y'all's view on on uh, EV and if, you, if it's not something you want to talk about that's fine but I know we've had discussions about it yeah in the past. no I mean I I think uh, you know I'm I'm Norwegian right Norway's pro and and I think welfare Will yeah, Ferrell well, made this clear in the Super Bowl that uh, Norway has the highest penetration of uh, EVs in the world um, that, I, might, I, that might have been the best commercial in the whole deal by the yeah. way <laughs> No, but I think you had to look at it, you know, what works in what market, right? And what works for what business? Um, you know, I, I took an Uber. I was at a Super Bowl party and I took an Uber home and it was a Chevrolet Bolt. And the first time I've seen a Bolt, but it seemed like a great little car. You know, I could see totally how people would be uh, driving around in those. So, so I think you had to look at, at the segment that, um, that you're trying to solve for. Uh, EVs always going to have uh, a range issue. You know, we maybe can overcome that range issue for uh, for four wheelers for personal cars. Uh, how is it going to work in the heavy duty business? Class A trucks. When will they be EV? Uh, you have hydrogen as a solution out there, and we've actually built a couple of hydrogen stations uh, uh, for Trillium or with Trillium, and uh, you know. How long does that penetration take? Um, so, so I think there's a lot of, you know, when people start talking about uh, carbon neutral by 2050, I mean, it's very easy to say you're setting a target that is so far out that will be, our careers will be done by then, whatever elected official will be out of office by then. So, so I don't know how much they mean on its own. I think having it as a vision and kind of something to strive for Great, but but setting a 2050 goal doesn't give you a business opportunity today that you a, a strategy you can execute. So so what we've been really focusing on through whether it's through our, our ourselves or our trade organization is you know what can we do today? 
you know, what are the drop in fuel uh, opportunities? I, I mean, I look at what happened with ethanol. I look at what happened with biodiesel. I look at DEF. And these are programs that, that has had a meaningful impact. And uh, I think if we always look at how can we lever existing infrastructure in a way that uh, creates some kind of uh, environmental benefit, you know, let's do that first. And then we can focus on some of these really long uh, plants uh, later on. And, and, you know, if you look at EV penetration where it is today, you know, if the average life of a car is 15 years and you had 10% penetration, you're never going to get there. You need to get to really, really, really high uh, penetration before you start seeing uh, a massive impact on, um, on uh, you know, that, a switch from EV. So what can we do in the meantime? Uh, I think, um, uh, you know, the CAFE standard, uh, you know, that's continuing to push for, for uh, lower emission. Uh, that's a starting point. How do you get there? Well, you get there by higher compression engines. You get there, you get uh, with higher compression engines, you need a higher octane gasoline that would have a higher ethanol blend. So, I mean, like there's a lot of things that, that we can do today uh, levering existing technologies and existing um, uh, existing uh, infrastructure. You mentioned you, you're with your trade organization. Which trade orga- organization is that? So National uh, NATSO, National Association of Truck, Truck Operators, Truck Stop Operators. Uh, that's probably the one we are uh, the most involved with. Um, but uh, we we're trying to uh, react to what's happening today. We are trying to. Uh, uh, be profitable today and we try to grow our business today and uh, the more clarity I think we can get from a regulatory perspective so that you can get a um, uh, an idea of how long your investment horizon is you know that that's probably one of the biggest asks we have when we, we talk to regulators is give us clarity we'll get you there but uh, but uh, we need some consistency well the good news is that Washington seems to have its stuff together so I'm sure that uh, there's no well, disorganization. Well, might be good, right? Yeah. So let me ask you this. Given that y'all are such a dominant player in the fuels space, whether it be you know diesel, biodiesel, regular gasoline, et cetera, um, what are y'all doing? Are y'all, are y'all helping drive the next progression of fuels? Are y'all working with... Um, you know, various labs internally or externally to, 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 to drive additional performance out of the fuels, whether it be, you know, um, impacting what the emissions are or anything like that. Question one. And then question two, are you, I think we've talked about this in the past. Do you have any, do you have any engagement with any of the manufacturers of the vehicles, the trucks, et cetera, in terms of engine technology that, that uh, that might help help further address some of these concerns that uh, folks have around around emissions. Well, we listen to our customers first. Yeah. Right. Uh, our loyalty is with the customer, and uh, we we try to understand their needs and how we can help serve them the best. So we, I look at ourselves as really being fuel agnostic. Uh, we are here to, to uh, as I said, we call it highway hospitality. We're here to make sure that uh, the driving public and the truckers have the offerings they need and that they want. So it, it's, you, you could get a little blinded if you get too uh, seduced by a lot of the fancy new technology and exciting stuff. If people aren't buying them, you, you're, you know, you haven't done your customer any good by by uh, uh, investing in it or, you know, promoting it. So, so we try to really uh, engage with our customers and and also be the maybe the the communication bridge between the new technologies and the new uh, alternatives and how it impacts then. I think compressed natural gas was a great example there. You know, your typical trucker back in 2012-13 when crude was 100 bucks and natural gas was 250, your typical trucker wouldn't recognize the fact that he could buy compressed natural gas at a dollar when diesel was $4. But 
through our marketing team, we could introduce them to that value proposition and say, hey, if you get a compressed natural gas truck and you come to our stations with, with uh, compressed natural gas capabilities, you can save a couple of bucks on fuel. So, so I, I look at that as how we communicate it, that's how we look at it, and that's how we engage, kind of bridging those uh, technologies and value propositions and translate it to our customer. There's and then an they can make the choice. There's an interesting technology. I've heard several people talk about it now that are in the logistics space, um, whether it just be you know general freight or or more specialized uh, you know oil field hauling, uh, particularly with the commodities, sand, etc. But the idea of somewhat uh, autonomous tethering, where you've got a driver, and and then because there's there's two or three trucks behind that driver that are basically following what that front truck is doing based on this in their, in their driverless trucks, essentially. Yeah. Um, do you see that? Do you see that catching on and, and does that impact y'all's business in any way in the sense of if, you know, the driver hospitality, you have fewer drivers on the road, et cetera, I guess one question. And then two, the, the autonomous driving, do you see that kind of taking off? as well and, and have y'all thought about how that how you cater to that market if you get that kind of change and if these these may be forward questions that you don't want to, yeah. to answer no, I, mean, I, I think uh, the autonomous uh, technology continue to evolve and um, you know is it going to be a point where where we all have autonomous vehicles I, I would be surprised if, if it didn't happen question is when is it going to happen in 5 years or 10 years or 20 years I know? not I like driving <laughs> I do <laughs> I like driving too, but what scares me to death is the other guy being autonomous. There, yeah. there, there are people that can that will probably be able to afford the autonomous vehicles. It's the people that can't afford those that are still driving that supposedly the computer's got to watch out for, and I don't trust the computer that much. That's me. Yeah. Yeah, that's no, me. but I think that technology is going to, uh, you know, it, it continues to develop, and and uh, I've seen a couple of of these, uh, uh, you know. Technologies and, and it's impressive what they do. I mean, they literally create these really high definition maps where it recognizes the paint stripe on the road, right? And and literally create almost like a railroad track, a, a digital railroad track that these guys just run. Uh, it, so it, mind blowing. You know, how does that affect us? Uh, they're still going to need fuel. They still, I, I think, the whole maintenance component and fueling component. Yep. So, so maybe you see a shift from in-store activity to more like a yard business with mechanic and and uh, and I, because one thing I can assure you, if you have a truck without the driver, somebody got to make sure that that technology is working every time. Mm-hmm. And kind of like you go through a, a, with an airplane, right? You have a checklist every time you you. Uh, Take off, so I see a lot of still a lot of services that's going to be needed on the the highway to serve even an autonomous network. Uh, when is that happening? I I couldn't tell you, but ways, it's ways it's uh, we're a few years out. Or, you, or you've got some out. unique real estate though too, and, and ample room generally in, mm-hmm. in y'all's footprint to to accommodate a I think a a litany of you know pivots that you might yeah. need to make. No, like I said, whatever the customer wants, we will do. (laughs) So, well, listen, I actually appreciate the way that you said it. Uh, I've never heard it, the the hospitality of the highway. That's a great way of uh, of thinking about it. I certainly, I've been familiar with Love's. I I didn't realize my entire life I had been, but certainly if you're driving anything West Texas or I-10 out out West, you've seen it. So that's a great way to think about it. I like that you guys are serving the customer like that as well. David, this has been, uh, once again, your network of friends is is just extraordinary. I met uh, in in the uh, your Christmas party this year and absolutely had a blast with him. Uh, It is, it's awesome to see that, uh, you know, that your friends and, and colleagues want to come on the, the podcast live. So thank you for, for setting us up today. Yeah, no, we'd love to. And uh, JP's a great guy and a, and, a, and a good friend. We don't see each other as often as, as we probably should, but uh, we always have a, have a good time together. So talk about, uh, I think Josh kind of uh, was curious um, if you've got any, you know, given your 
time on this earth and the many experiences you've had and the people that you've met, is there any any parting thoughts or or words of wisdom that you'd like to share with our audience that uh, that they might find helpful in their in their daily lives? Yeah. No, I'm, I I would say I, I think uh, grit and tenacity is uh, wins all the time. You know, I think if you um, if you uh, look at uh, you know and, and and also find what you like to do. I, I, if if I especially when I talk to younger people about uh, career choices and stuff like that, I, I kind of go like, hey, there's 24 hours in a day. You sleep for eight. You commute for a couple. You do your things and you work and and in the end you you're only left with a couple of hours a day to do what you want and to do what you like if that can become your job where you love your job you love the people around your job you love what you do your quality of life and your happiness just goes through the roof right so so uh, if you find yourself doing something that don't bring enjoyment to you uh, professionally, uh, you know, quit, stop, find that one thing. And it may take you a couple of tries, uh, but if you're coming out of school today, you know, you have a, you know, a lot of time before it really starts, uh, mattering. So always seek out that one thing that you, that you really love to do and make that your career It's going to make you more successful and it's going to make you a happier person. I think that's, uh, Probably the best lesson I, I, I is, give. That's excellent advice. And, you know, you going back to the point of people are, um, when you talk about the new workforce that you're talking about, they're, they're realizing that sooner than maybe you did or I did or whomever is listening to this. Because, yeah, I mean, there's some duty and you graduate or you're out of school or out of trade. It's time to go to work immediately. And you're doing it because maybe you're good at it, but you don't like it. And at some point you run out of energy to fake it or you're just miserable the entire time and money isn't going to cover the, the unhappiness. So I think that is excellent advice. The, the one clarifying point, and I think is worth mentioning, and, and if I'm incorrect, please correct me. But uh, to your point of tenacity and grit, I think that with some of the young folks that we have the pleasure of, of uh of offering employment to <clears throat> I get to work with there is an element of tenacity and grit that has to be there and um, I, I find oftentimes that some folks they 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 don't have enough tenacity and grit to stick with it long enough to determine truly if they really enjoy it or not you know not everything is easy and and sometimes I think the real opportunity for growth for people is is when they're challenged. So I get I, I agree with you 110 percent, JP. I just hope I hope some of these folks don't just hop to hop and and that they 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 look inwardly as they, as mm-hmm. much as they do outwardly because I think the the worst thing that could happen to a young person is that. Uh, when they come in and they sit down in an interview with a resume and you see, you know, stints of less than a year or so, or even less than two years at, you know, different groups, you can read a lot into that. Uh, and oftentimes, um, you know, it's, it's, it's viewed negatively, but anyways, I just, I just add that just for younger folks that might be listening, but I agree 110%. It's all about we'll get our, we'll get our millennial credit. Jonathan back there to give his, yeah. his input on this. <laughs> I mean, truly, Jonathan's a Texas A&M graduate. He could, he could be, Jonathan could get just about any job he wanted to apply for. And he said, no, no, I, I, I've got my own LLC. I'm, I'm mixing it up. He travels a lot. Like that is a, Jonathan's 26, maybe seven years old. I don't, I should know Jonathan. I'm sorry, but he's, He's very talented. And you look at a guy that could go do, and he does whatever he wants right now, and he makes a living doing it. So doing his passion, his video and sound. So um, now, great advice, Jay, sir. Appreciate your time. This has been excellent. Uh, thank you for coming on the podcast. Thank you for sharing your wisdom. If you is there a website that people should go to uh, to learn more about the biggest company they've never heard of? There's a, a loves.com. Uh, I think we have all the uh, uh, sister companies covered under that. There's also a uh, musketcorp.com. Okay. 
I think there's a trilliumcng.com. There are. I just so, went and looked so at these. Yeah. There. So loves.com. Loves.com, musketcorp.com, trilliumcng.com. Okay, very good. David, do you have anything else you'd like to leave us with today? No, I just really appreciate you coming on. enjoyed the conversation uh, as I knew we probably would and look forward to hearing the feedback from our audience. And uh, I think you'll find that uh, there'll be a lot of folks that reach out to you that uh, hopefully will we'll, most likely will say very nice things. So, uh, <laughs> well, guys, this has been really enjoyable. Uh, great morning and, and uh, thank you for hosting and thank you for the friendships yes sir as well yes, sir. well this is going to wrap up uh, another episode of oilfield 360 um, from the fletch Azul podcast studio uh, if you have any information or you want more information look us up on all our social media platforms uh, you could go to oilfield360.com if you have any complaints send those to david at oilfield360.com if you have any compliments you send those to josh at oilfield360.com and we'll go from there. David, wonderful job. Jonathan, thank you for uh, making us sound good, look good. And uh, look us up on our uh, YouTube channel. Uh, Just search Oilfield 360 Podcast on YouTube. Thank you, David. Great job. Thank you. Yep. Tim. This episode of the Oilfield 360 Podcast was brought to you by the following companies. EIV Capital, a growth equity-focused private equity firm, which has been providing capital to the North American energy industry since 2009. The team has extensive experience across the entire energy value chain. We invite you to visit EIVcapital.com and learn how we partner with entrepreneurs to build businesses. Merit Advisors, crafting holistic tax solutions to improve your cash flow and add profit back to your bottom line. When it comes to state and local taxes, Merit is the expert in the oil and gas industry. Visit MeritAdvisor.com. World Oil. For more than 103 years, World Oil has provided global decision makers with coverage of the latest market intelligence and technological advances relating to the upstream oil and gas industry. To subscribe and learn more about these essential resources, please visit worldoil.com slash subscribe. Thank you to our sponsors, Simmons Energy, a division of Piper Sandler, SimmonsPSC.com, Lockton Global Energy and Marine, Lockton.com, Tomahawk Safety, TomahawkSafety.com, Prang and Associates, Prang.com, Daniel Energy Partners, DanielEP.com, EIV Capital, EIVCapital.com, Galtway Marketing, GaltwayMarketing.com, Range Valuation Services, RangeValuationServices.com, Merit Advisors, MeritAdvisor.com, World Oil, WorldOil.com, Fletcher Azul Tequila, FletcherAzulTequila.com. For more information on today's guest and to learn more about our sponsors, please follow us on LinkedIn, Instagram, or at OilField360.com. Piper Sandler Companies, NYSE PIPR, is a leading investment bank and institutional securities firm driven to help clients realize the power of partnership. Securities brokerage and investment banking services are offered in the U.S. through Piper Sandler & Company, member SIPC and FINRA, in Europe through Piper Sandler Limited, authorized and regulated by the Securities and Futures Commission. Asset management products and services are offered through four separate investment advisory affiliates, U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission, SEC-registered Piper Sandler Investment Management, LLC, PJC Capital Partners, LLC, and Piper Sandler and Company and Guernsey-based Parallel General Partners Limited, authorized and regulated by the Guernsey Financial Services Commission. Simmons Energy, a division of Piper Sandler, are the energy specialists of Piper Sandler.